Well, hello, hello again there, ever easy for me to say. Hello there, everyone. It's Paul Aronowitz bringing you Adventure 2, another clinical problem-solving case by one of our Doctoring 4 students. I think you're going to enjoy this one as you hopefully enjoyed the first one. So sit back, relax, and you're going to get a little more introduction here. Welcome to the third episode of our mini-series, Clinical Problem Solving, where we have two master clinicians show us how they use their clinical reasoning skills to go through some complex cases. My name is Christine Fung, and I am a fourth-year medical student at UC Davis going into internal medicine. And today we'll be going through another exciting case called all that wheezes, taken from the New England Journal of Medicine, with our two very special guests today, Dr. Rachel Lucatorto and Dr. Derek Bays. I'm going to have the both of you briefly introduce yourselves and answer this icebreaker question. If you didn't go into medicine, what other profession would you have chosen? I'll go first. Um, so, uh, as Christine said, my name is Rachel Lucatorto. I'm one of the associate program directors here for the at UC Davis for the uh, internal medicine residency program. If I were not in medicine realistically, I would um, probably be teaching high school English and um, coaching basketball, which is what I did. But um, sort of, um, you know, you know, maybe sort of like alternative reality. What I might be doing was be to be an intern on the Ellen Show. Oh, Because wow. you get to, like, yeah, you give away stuff. Like, you know, a teacher comes in needing a pencil for a student, ends up with, like, iPads for the entire school, a new house, and everyone in the audience gets a flat-screen TV. And she's funny. But <laughs> That's I such a answer. good answer. Yeah. Um, and so I'm Derek Bays. Uh, I'm a chief resident in internal medicine and will be starting an infectious disease fellowship uh, in just a few months here at UC Davis. Um, I actually was just asked that if you didn't go into medicine question, and my usual answer is that I would be a high school biology teacher, and I was told that doesn't count because you're still talking about medicine-y things. So I think my other answer, and probably more fun, would be is I would want to be a sports writer, specifically about baseball. Wow. A lot of sports people here today. Yes. All right. So thank you so much uh, for joining us today. Let's get started with the case. All right, so we have a 20-year-old woman presenting to her physician's office with persistent cough and shortness of breath. So before we go into further details, um, what are some differentials that come to mind in this young woman with a chief complaint of cough and shortness of breath? Right, and I think um, when we have this, uh, when you have a young woman with this persistent cough or almost like a chronic cough, we tend to think about chronic cough initial diagnosis or differential diagnoses. So common things being common, we often think about what I was previously told was post-nasal drip uh, uh, cough, which has now been renamed to upper, uh, upper airway cough syndrome, which was new to me as of 20 minutes ago. Um, but also um, things like GERD, also asthma, although we often think about asthma being diagnosed um, earlier in someone's life than 20 years old. Um, other things, you know, post-viral coughs, we, we often see people that have had, a, a, especially young people that have had a virus, and then they come to their primary care doctor a couple weeks later because they still have this cough, which is just a benign post-tussive uh, or post-viral cough. Um, although the shortness of breath, I would say, is something to kind of keep in mind because not all chronic cough that we think about, especially things like GERD or this upper airway cough syndrome, would be associated with shortness of breath. Yeah, I don't know that I uh, have uh, much else to add. I think um, I would also just sort of common things being common. Um, you don't want to sort of review medications, make sure there wasn't anything like an ACE inhibitor. Um, you know, chronic bronchitis, which we see mostly in smokers occasionally, um, can occur in um, a small proportion of patients secondary to um, chronic exposure and, you know, sort of inflammation from fumes or dust. Um, uh, bronchiectasis, if we learn that this woman had a past medical history of recurrent, um, uh, you know, respiratory infections um, um, or risk factors for something like MAC. Um, and then uh, much less likely in um, a, a young woman would be some kind of um, malignancy. Pulmonary would be less likely in a young woman with something like lymphoma, again, causing both um, the cough and shortness of breath, as Derek said. I think, um, you know, persistent cough, and we'll sort of see what the length is, assuming it's sort of chronic more than six to eight weeks. Um, the most common causes besides asthma don't usually, aren't usually accompanied by shortness of breath. And one thing I was thinking about when, you know, whenever we 
are seeing these persistent coughs, you do think about cancer. I would say, in like the young person, we sometimes maybe think not like the like the terrible teas, like the mediastinal kind of masses that could potentially be compressing the airway, leading to shortness of breath, more of a mechanical shortness of breath, and then having this cough from just air irritation of the mass, whether it's compressing on some of the. The, the larynx itself or like the laryngeal nerves that would lead to triggering cough. But like, like I totally agree with Dr. Lucatorto where it, it would be very odd to have most, most 20 year olds don't have malignancy, fortunately. Yeah, that's a great broad list of differentials, including common ones as well as some red flags one as well. So kind of going further into her HPI, she was seen six weeks earlier for nasal congestion, rhinorrhea, post-nasal trip, and cough. Since then, the congestion has improved with fluticasone nasal spray, but her cough has persisted. She says that the cough is worse at night with some wheezing during prolonged episodes of coughing, and she's noticed this occurs at home and at work. And at the time of this presentation, she also had some shortness of breath with walking. She actually tried using her grandma's inhaler, which I know we all should not do, um, if it gets really bad, and she noted some relief, enough for her to at least go back to sleep at night. Otherwise, she denies any fevers, chills, sputum production, headache, joint pains, muscle aches, heartburn, nausea, vomiting, or frequent throat clearing. So with this history, anything change in your list of differentials? So I, I do think... There, there's a lot of good information here. The first thing I would say is the, that last line where we're talking about all these, uh, the, the negative review of systems, right? So there's not feverish chills, speed in production to make us think of either a walking pneumonia or another type of more atypical infection, whether thinking about tuberculosis or some of the dimorphic fungal infections. Um, the lack of systemic symptoms make us even think, you know, whenever you're talking about sinus problems in cough, we think about vasculitis uh, or some of our pulmonary um, pulmonary renal syndromes and things like that, uh, but again, more associated with uh, systemic symptoms. I would say that th some things that I found interesting when you were describing this is the cough initially was associated with sinus problems, but when they fit, when the sinus problems, whether the, the congestion, rhinorrhea, when that was treated, the cough persisted, so I think that may be a little bit of a red herring. In other words, there may have been two processes going on, a common one and maybe something not as common given that the cough is persistent through this. Uh, the last thing I would say, the, the cough occurring at night, we do tend things that can cause cough more so at night, um, and then think of things that would make you more short of breath or cough more when you lie down. So whether it's GERD, although she denies any um, uh, heartburn type symptoms, that can certainly get worse. Uh, when you're lying down at night, asthma has a uh, tendency to be worse at night. I, I don't think a 20-year-old has heart failure, but heart failure tends to get worse at night, but thinking uh, thinking along those lines. I think the other thing to think about uh, worse at night is that um, there is a phenomenon um, that um, any process mediated by eosinophils actually gets um, worse at night because it um, uh, varies, it's sort of inversely proportional to the diurnal cycle of steroids. And um, so um, EOs go up as um, steroids go down, which tends to happen um, in the evening and nighttime. Um, asthma um, also, in terms of another sort of allergic um, um, stimulated or sort of allergy-based um, process can also get um, worse at night. I think um, just other points um, related to this uh, this part of the history that we got. I think the fact that it occurs at home and at work um, means potentially less likely an environmental trigger, although there are triggers that can be carried along um, in clothing, um, you know, cigarette smoke, cat dander, things like that. Um, you know, um, and then there are uh, certainly um, initial exposures that can sort of persist in something like a reactive um, airways dysfunction syndrome. Um, or um, you know hypersensitivity pneumonitis. Um, so I think we still haven't ruled out an environmental cause, but maybe makes it less likely that it's sort of a simple um, allergic reaction. Um, uh, let's see. So I think you know if, if in terms of how I'm phrasing the how I'm sort of framing this now, I think that we're looking at a and, and the fact that it's it's got better with um, essentially a. Um, uh, let's see, it was an inhaler, her grandmother an inhaler. I assume it was a bronchodilator, yeah. like albuterol. So, um, you know, sort of 
um, asthma like? So I would say that now we're looking at something, assuming that she doesn't have, we haven't heard at least about a past medical history of asthma at sort of an adult onset asthma like um, syndrome. Um, and that does help us sort of narrow um, our differential. Sounds great. So just with a little bit more history, she has a past medical history of migraines, allergic sinusitis, obesity, and for medication, she was using the fluticasone nasal spray I mentioned earlier, as well as loratadine once a day is needed. And she denies any drug allergies. For social history, she was born in the Dominican Republic, but lived in the Boston area with her mother for the past several years. She works full-time at a daycare center, and she has a pet dog. And she reported no exposure to mold, smoke, cockroaches, or mice. And she denies any tobacco, alcohol, or drug use. For family history, she has a mother with allergic rhinitis and a sister with childhood asthma. So with this history, anything stand out to you particularly? So I, I wanted to say, I think at this time, we now have enough information to do a problem representation to kind of start framing our discussion around this patient. Um, so I can, I'll share what I'm thinking, and then I'll let Dr. Lucatordo uh uh, fill in what what she thinks. So I would say we have a young woman with allergic sinusitis and, um, from the Dominican Republic presenting with a, she's at six weeks, I'm going to call it a chronic cough. Um, which then I, I do and think shortness there's... Shortness of breath. And, yes, chronic cough with shortness of breath. And so, I think we're adding too many things. Oh no. <laughs> <laughs> Alright, that's fine. <laughs> Just give me shortness of breath. I'll give you a shortness okay. of breath. Um, so when I'm kind of hearing about that, so the, so there are some things that I've, I would, would say that cha kind of change in our differential. So uh, Dr. Lucatorto already brought up eosinophils or an eosinophil-mediated mediated process. So we do have now someone from the, from the Dominican Republic. We don't know how long she's been um, in Boston, but I do think there's potentially exposures for certain types of parasites. So we we have to kind of start thinking about like mm. Loeffler syndrome, strongylodiasis, um, things like that. Also tuberculosis. Uh, there is some coccyx in the Dominican Republic, so thinking about that as well. Um, kind of add on to our differential, um, but I do think th there are still. I think we need a little bit more information to really know for sure. The one thing I did want to bring up regarding the medications that she's on. Is I, she's on Flonase, she's on Loratadine, and she's been treated for allergic sinusitis, and it seems like this is still persistent. I'm, I don't want to like, keep harping on the allergic sinusitis, but I sometimes wonder if that diagnosis, if it was real, if she's being treated for it, it's not necessarily helping all of her symptoms. So those are some of the things that stood out for me. Yeah, I think other things to just note in terms of risk factors, um, certainly, um, especially the, you know, sort of 25% of um, asthmatics that don't present with asthma until adulthood. Many of them do have a family history of ATP or a, um, a, a, their own you know, sort of personal um, history of some kind of ATP. So the fact that she does have um, this, you know, sort of history of allergies, um, um, you know, could be relevant. I do think also, um, Patients who are obese um, sometimes uh, have worsening um, or worse um, symptoms of um, of asthma. And again, um, you know, as we said, this you know the sort of wheezing, shortness of breath, cough um, is all asthma. You can actually have a, a a variant of asthma that is cough variant. Although she does sound like um, with the cough, and she develops wheezing and shortness of breath as well. I agree with adding um, Strangi to the to the list um, given her. Um, her birthplace. Um, and uh, I think otherwise medications, one of the things that I was thinking about with adult onset asthma would be an aspirin, um, an aspirin sensitive asthma, um, although um, the fact that she's not on that um, is significant. Um, I think that uh, I would also want to make sure that she's not taking anything over the counter. There are things like um, NSAIDs and other supplements that can actually induce sort of a Loeffler's type of um, um, uh, scenario as well as um, the parasites that, and the strategy that, that Derek mentioned. Sure. The, the, regarding her pets, I, you know, I was thinking about this. I, I don't Dogs tend to be relatively kind when it comes to causing other infections or problems. It seems more like cats are the bigger problem, and I don't mean to divide any people just, that are cat versus dog people, but dogs seem relatively 
They choose shoes, though. That, this is a problem. Yeah. This is a problem. <laughs> Rip up so far. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, speaking of pets, this is a, sort of a poor segue, but the daycare center, yeah. um, that maybe adds, uh, we've talked about URIs and, uh, you know, maybe I would probably put pertussis in terms of persistent cough um, as a sort of more specific agent that could, um, can cause this sort of almost, almost a, you know, sort of chronic cough at this point. Um, and, um, you know, the sort of post-viral tussis syndrome that, that Derek mentioned before um, can happen for a lot of reasons besides just sort of congestion lasting from the URI. It can also be that the inflammation sort of exposes some of the nerve endings that make the, the airways, you know, sort of hypersensitive. Um, so I think that there are sort of, a, a, you know, several mechanisms by which, a, you know, a URI, and I think that her work at the daycare center slash Petri dish um, might be <laughs> as well. Yeah, um, thank you so much. I think that was such a great way to tease out different parts of our history when we're approaching this problem. Can I have one last thing? Yeah, of course. The other thing I would look for in a um, family history, although I have to say I should probably look up the genetics of this, um, is, uh, you know, she is young to present with, you know, sort of a um, COPD type of situation, except if she had um, alpha-1 antitrypsin, um, although mm. I believe that that... Um, I don't remember the pattern of inheritance. It's, I want to say it's autosomal. I don't think it's recessive. I think it actually is dominant, but there's different. If you're different a heterozygote, right? it, there's different penetration. Okay. I think, though, that the, the relatively benign family history, although a history of A to P, both allergic rhinitis and childhood asthma, would lean me more towards um, asthma, not uh, that entity, the yeah. um, alpha 1 antitrypsin deficiency. All right, so shall we move on to the physical exam? So her physical exam is significant for an O2 saturation of 96% on room air, as well as some diffuse, high-pitched expiratory wheezing and increased ratio of expiratory to inspiratory time. Her nasopharyngeal mucosa was normal in appearance. So how do you interpret these physical exam findings? So, I, I mean, like we've been kind of alluding to that there's probably an obstructive process going on here, and it does seem like there is some, whether it's reactive airway disease or obstructive pulmonary disease, given that she has diffuse high-pitched expiratory wheeze, which are classic for either an asthma wheeze or even a COPD-type wheeze, um, and then, the, again, the increased rate of expiratory to inspiratory time suggesting of an obstruction. Um, some things that are normal that also do stand out. So the 96% on room air, so she does seem, while she is short of breath with this cough, she does seem to be oxygenating appropriately. Um, and then we've talked about her sinusitis multiple times now, but her nasal pharyngeal mucosa is normal, which thinking about whether it's GPA, EGPA, some of these things that can cause destructive uh, nasal, uh, nasal disease, we're not seeing any of that. Um, and then I had alluded to earlier whether when we were talking about malignancy, um, talking about like the, the mediastinal masses, you know, this exam doesn't necessarily rule it out, but it makes it less likely. We would think if there was a obstructive process from a mass, it would be an, a fixed obstruction instead of a reactive airway disease obstruction. So we would potentially be, be seeing, focal. yeah, it, it, we would be seeing maybe more focal or seeing um, also if it was actually more proximal, being hearing strider in addition to wheeze, uh, which we're not seeing any of that. Right, and I think that also another diagnosis that we probably should have mentioned that can present with wheezing is vocal cord dysfunction, and that usually does present, it's much sort of, it's louder, you know, sort of more proximally, and then sort of at the base of the lungs actually um, uh, is softer. And so I think this, the, the, the diffuse nature of the wheezes um, uh, does help in terms of masses or sort of an upper airway, even foreign body um, type of uh, process. Would that present more with some hoarseness as well? Um, it may or may not, actually. Interesting. Yeah. Because it's more the sort of dysfunction of their um, movement um, in terms of, um, and so it's more sort of a wheezing than a, than a hoarseness. All right. So, um, so at this point, what do you think is highest on your differential? I know we talked about a lot, um, and we have a kind of a good broad list. Right. I, I mean, I think it this time the thing that's highest on my deferential is some sort of asthma, whether it's adult onset asthma or an asthma mimicker, which there are many and we've kind of talked about and whether they're related to eosinophils. Um, I do think we do need a fair amount more information to really to make that differential, but I would say based on her exam, 
the fact that it got better with what we're presuming is a bronchodilator, I'm thinking more along the asthma, asthma mimicker family. I agree, and I think in terms of, um, com again, sort of now that we're, this is common things being common, but common things for sort of adult onset asthma, occupational asthma, um, still you'd expect some variation in terms of location, but these are some sort of environmental trigger that is about 10% of um, new onset asthma cases in an adult. Um, uh, and then sort of is there some hypersensitivity reaction, either, you know, an ABPA, mm -hmm. um, you know, we mentioned um, EGPA, um, um, you know, I'm going to assume it's not sort of just the plain old um, asthma, because um, I don't think we'd be sitting here recording this if it were Yes. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I do think that um, getting some labs and, and uh, probably some imaging, given the, the presence of shortness of breath and the lack of, res of response to, um, uh, oh, well, I'll just say that for now. So at this point, you know, with your patient coming into your office, are you comfortable giving the preliminary diagnosis? And what test, what specific test or imaging would you do? And also, would you start the patient on any treatment? So I'll start with the, the treatment. I don't think it's unreasonable when you have someone that is presenting with wheezing that's worse at night or thinking about asthma type mimickers to, to try a bronchodilator for symptomatic relief. Um, I, it's also, in a sense, a diagnostic trial, right? And right, if you give her a bronchodilator and it's not getting any better, we may need to re, kind of rethink what's actually causing this. And I do tend to think with chronic coughs, we could break the bank on imaging lab studies um, and diagnostic tests when often we do trials of treatments for the common things being common. Um, in terms of further testing, I, I think, you know, chest X, at this point now that she's six weeks out, it's, it's hard to say on my first pass what I would go with. I, I do think I would definitely be getting a CBC to be looking for eosinophilia, which could which would drastically change my approach. Uh, because if she had eosinophilia, I think I would be more aggressive with further testing as well as further imaging. I think a chest X-ray, a CBC with the differential right now are my two main things I want with a lot more things that, whether it's pulmonary function tests, um, additional studies for eosinophilia, depending on if it's there or not. Yeah, I, I, I agree. I think in terms of what I send off the sort of rheumatology gram yet, probably um, probably not yet. I might get a BMP and a UA just to sort of look for renal involvement in terms of some of the pulmonary renal syndromes and, you know, sort of more systemic processes like a um, vasculitis that we were talking about um, just because I wouldn't want to miss, um, um, you know, any AKI or CKD. Um, uh, I do think since there's, you know, suggestion of possible parenchymal um, involvement um, that I probably would, as you said, start with the a chest x-ray rather than but start there and not necessarily get a CT yet. Okay. So this patient was diagnosed with a preliminary diagnosis of asthma and was given a trial of an albuterol inhaler to, to use as needed. And the patient was also referred for pulmonary function testing to confirm. Um, can you tell us, I know you mentioned earlier that in patients, 75% of patients with asthma are often diagnosed at an early age, as early as before seven years old. So in your experience, is this usually the case? I, I think so. I mean, most of the time, I would say my experience is people say that they had childhood asthma, and then when they present with adulthood, it's maybe they've moved and have a new exposure that's leading to causing symptoms. Um, but often it's we don't see a lot of people that have had severe persistent asthma their whole life, but they often had it as a kid, and then it shows up again later in life, usually after a move. And I mean, being in Sacramento where we practice, I can't tell you how many people we see that are either from the East Coast or from another, maybe even just another part of the, the state where they come to Sacramento where we're formerly the city of trees for a reason, and now they're exposed to all this pollens and uh, pollens and pollen and allergens that they then suddenly their asthma is a lot more out of control. Yeah, I, I agree. I think um, usually someone has some kind of history. Um, you know, I do think, as I mentioned, some of the, the adult onset causes, we talked about occupational asthma, aspirin-sensitive asthma. There is a process called eosinophilic asthma. Um, uh, 
you know, the reactive airways dysfunction syndrome, um, you know, the ABPA and the EGPA are the sort of entities that I think about um, when I think about adults presenting with, um, with asthma-like symptoms. All right, sounds good. Um, so she was also uh, referred for pulmonary function testing, and I'll go over the results for our listeners. So her FEV1 over FVC ratio was 0.58, or 67% of the predicted value. And after administration of a bronchodilator therapy, her FEV1 increased by 300 milliliters, or 22%. And her flow volume loop is shown on the right. And for our listeners, basically, their flow volume loop shows a concave tour, contour. So can you go over with our listeners quickly in terms of um, what these PFT findings suggest? Right, so I think kind of going just down the list, so the FEV1 over FEC being 67% of predicted value, um, it's really quite low um, for someone that supposedly doesn't have, like for just adult onset asthma. And then you look at the administrative of a bronchodilator, we see the improvement in FEV1 by 22%, which again suggests a reversible process, uh, so something that's going to be sensitive to a bronchodilator. Um, and then for the flow volume loop, uh, you know, we, we kind of talked about this again earlier, and I think this definitely confirms that there's not some sort of um, proximal obstruction because we don't see a kind of like the, the plateau that we would see if there was a fixed upper airway obstruction. And so, I you know, if you... Like Rachel said, or like Dr. Lucatorto already said, this the the interpret the is the PFTs. You would say that you know this is a, there is an obstructive process with airway reactivity on bronchodilators, possibly suggestive of asthma. But I don't think he would be recording us if it was for asthma. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So just kind of a quick um, review for our listeners: uh, the FEV one is the forced expiratory volume in one second divided by the FVC, which is the uh, total volume of air exhaled. And I think the normal cutoff is about 70%, and hers is 67%, so below normal, uh, which is consistent with an obstructive process, and asthma is um, one explanation. And the for bronchodilator response, so an increase in FEV1 of at least 12%, or at least 200 milliliters, um, is a positive test and indicates reversible obstruction, uh, like Dr. Bayes mentioned. Uh, and that's one of the three main clinical characteristics of asthma, as we just talked about. All right. So given the results of the patient's PFT, she was started on therapy with an inhaled glucocorticoid and a long-acting beta adrenergic agonist bronchodilator. A short-acting beta adrenergic agonist bronchodilator was also prescribed for rescue symptoms. Unfortunately, um, as you mentioned, uh, she uh, actually represented. Her, her symptoms escalated and did not respond to the addition of either a leukotriene modifier or a long-acting anticholinergic bronchodilator. So she came again, and this is six months after her initial presentation, with worsening cough, shortness of breath, and wheezing. And then on physical exam this time, uh, basically, overall unchanged vital signs continue to be normal. O2 saturation was 97% on room air. She continued to have some prolonged expiratory wheezing in both lung fields, and otherwise the rest of the exam was unchanged. So it seems like she didn't improve, um, but the physical exam didn't change much. What would you do now, and has your differential changed at this point? So I think, you know, I wouldn't... I we have been alluding maybe not by just for that they were doing a CPS type case that there's probably something else going on here. But I think the fact that this is persistent and failing through a, a long-acting um, beta agonist, a short-acting beta agonist, a leukotriene inhibitor, as well as an inhaled glucocorticosteroid, if this is asthma, it's not typical asthma, and I, there's either potentially a ongoing allergen or ongoing exposure that's leading to persistent symptoms, or there's something else going on. Again, I want eosinophils, <laughs> but uh, we, we're, I'm assuming, getting to that point where we get some labs. Um, the rest, I would say talking about her, the rest of her physical exam, though, there are still no signs of any nasal um, abnormalities for a, a, a vasculitis that we've been alluding to with EG, EGPA or GPA. The neuro exam also being normal, 
um, and no skin and no rashes also make vasculitis something that's maybe a little bit lower on the differential, although eosinophil granulomatous with polyangitis or EGPA, I just realized we've been using that abbreviation without actually saying what it was, um, can, will often present in phases, and the first phase tends to be asthma that's very treatment resistant uh, before you then develop the vasculitis phase with rashes or neurologic symptoms. The neurologic, usually sort of a mononeuritis multiplex or polyneuropathy. Mm -hmm. Um, I agree. I think um, the only caveat is uh, not necessarily for this patient, but in general, when patients are not responding to an inhaler-based regimen, as you might expect, to just make sure that they're using the inhalers correctly, having had patients swear that their inhalers aren't working, but they hadn't actually taken the cap off, even though they were holding it two finger breaths away. And so, um, uh, but it does, I think that the fact that she's not responding to um, what seems like very um, appropriate, even aggressive um, asthma management um, is suggestive that this is, as we've been saying, not just run of the mill asthma. Yeah, I think that's an excellent point. I think I remember during my third year rotations, I was advised that if the inhaler treatment doesn't work, often you have to tell to see how the patient yes. uses it right. because a lot of people use it incorrectly. Yeah. I'd also say that making sure they have a spacer, right? Yeah. As someone that has asthma that uses an inhaler, I've tried, if I don't have my spacer, I've tried using the two finger breath. Especially having to hold your breath when you're short of breath. Yeah, <laughs> it's not it's not yeah. easy. And if you don't use your if you don't use a spacer or move the inhaler away, all you're doing is getting a lot of short acting bronchodilators on the back of your uvula, which as far as I'm aware, has still not been shown to be effective Not in the as lungs. effective, no. They <laughs> haven't done the study yet. <laughs> All right, so what, finally they got some uh, new labs. Um, I know Dr. Bayes, you've been mentioning, you've been waiting for that CBC. So for her labs, her sodium potassium chloride were normal, BUN creatinine were normal, hemoglobin, hematocrit, and platelet were normal. However, she does have a leukocytosis of 20,000. Can we with, do a drum roll on a... <laughs> with 53%. 53% eosinophils. I think normal is between 0 to 5. Mm -hmm. And an elevated ESR of 31 and an elevated CRP of 41.7. So I know obvious question, but what jumps out at you and how is your differential changed? So, I mean, the hyper eosinophilia is certainly... Um, jumping out, but I, you know, I'd say more so than I was expecting, right? I was expecting maybe an ES, a total, an absolute eosinophil count in the like two to three thousand range. Maybe thinking about allergic bronchopulmonary aspergillosis. Um, it, Ten thousand is a lot of eosinophils. Um, I think that really does change the, our way we need to be thinking about this. And if now that we've gotten some um, some additional data, I think we can maybe try and reframe our problem representation of now we have this young woman from the Dominican Republic um, with allergic sinusitis presenting with definitely now chronic cough, shortness of breath found to have reactive airway disease that's resistant to treatment for typical asthma in a, uh, a hyper eosinophilia. Yeah. Uh, and then, you know, everyone has their own diff, uh, or acronyms for eosinophilia. Um, the one that I've recently found when I was helping uh, some of our residents with board review was the acronym CHINA. I don't know if you have one, Dr. Lucatorto. NAACP. Yeah, so I'll go, through the, I'll go through CHINA, and then I'll have Dr. Lucatorto go through hers. But so CHINA, the C for connective tissue disease, um, H for helminths, um, I for idiopathic, um, including um, just chronic eosinophilic syndrome, N is for neoplasma, and then A is for allergies. Um, me being biased in infectious disease, I make the C also coccidioidomycosis, but that's just the way I like to think about things. Is neoplasma like an innovative blood product? <laughs> Did I? You said neoplasm. Oh, That's yes, neo, yes. I just want, you can take that part. <laughs> no, no, I think we should keep that in there. <laughs> um, 
Yeah, so I think in thinking about for this patient going through the NAACP, um, neoplasma, often known as neoplasm, you do think about things like um, both Hodgkin's and non-Hodgkin's lymphoma as well as eosinophilic leukemia. I do think that after six months was her return time, I think that mm -hmm. probably things uh, would have declared themselves even more on a sort of constitutional and systemic level. Um, and so I don't think we're looking at um, um, a neoplasm um, or a neoplasma. Um, and uh, uh, in terms of allergies, I, so the, a, the first A is um, for allergies. Um, I do think the sort of Loeffler's um, uh, syndrome, which can present with, um, you know, sort of uh, pulmonary infiltration of the, the eosinophils as an allergic response to a sort of hypersensitivity or allergic response to, um, um, you know, strongyloides or, you know, medications, including over-the-counter stuff like um, NSAIDs, as we were mentioning before. Um, I think... Um, I do think that that's still on the on the on the differential as well as um, ABPA allergic bronchopulmonary aspergillosis. Um, usually, those patients present uh, a, with some more constitutional um, symptoms and in terms of fevers. Um, you know, productive cough, even um, hemoptysis. I've seen lobar collapse secondary to the mucus plugging that that patient that a patient had with ABPA. There tends to be a lot of um, a lot of secretions. Um, I think uh, the second A is um, Addison's is you know sort of adrenal insufficiency. Um, uh, she doesn't have any vital sign or. Uh, electrolyte um, findings consistent with that, and that wouldn't ex certainly wouldn't explain the, the pulmonary um, process. Although if it were autoimmune, you could, you know, sort of invoke other, you know, sort of autoimmune um, uh, processes. Um, collagen vascular diseases um, is the C, as you mentioned, sort of connective tissue. I do think, um, you know, eGPA is, is definitely on our, um, on our list. And parasites we mentioned, um, uh, Strongy, I think. Um, and I, I think that, um, you know, there are other sort of uh, sometimes sort of etiology, relatively unknown idiopathic um, syndromes like hyper-eosinophilic um, syndrome um, that can present with um, very high eosinophils. Um, chronic eosinophilic pneumonia. I think an acute eosinophilic pneumonia would um, probably, she'd be sicker. This would not be sort of a six-month-later um, check-in. Um, I think usually with chronic eosinophilic pneumonia, there are more systemic and constitutional symptoms like um, fevers, weight loss. Um, and there you actually can't have both obstructive or restrictive pattern on, on um, PFTs. But this level of eosinophilia, as, as Derek suggested, um, is, you know, I worked with a, um, a colleague who used to say there's eosinophilia and there's eosinophilia. <laughs> and this is eosinophilia, which I think really sort of um, narrows it um, into some of the down to some of the entities that we've talked about. Only an internist would make that joke. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and I think severe eosinophilia um, is the definition is anything above 5,000. Yeah. So hers is 10,000. Yeah. Is... And, and it is important to note that it's, the percent is not what matters. It's the absolute eosinophil right. count. And the absolute eosinophil count actually does not necessarily correlate with... So eosinophils love tissues, but the absolute count doesn't necessarily correlate with tissue infiltration. So even with a relatively low count, you can have pretty significant infiltration, and even with a high count, you might not see um, as dramatic uh, infiltration. So we want some imaging, too, to see yes. what her infiltration looks like. And I mean, we can also, I mean, the, her CRP is 42. Um, so that, you know, and I know these are really nonspecific things, but if we, you know, kind of making us think about the connective tissue, the autoimmune type process, there's some sort of very inf uh, strong inflammatory response happening right mm -hmm. now. All right, that's such a great list of differential for eosinophilia, and I love both mnemonics. Definitely heard of the NAACP before, and I'll add China too on my list as well. Um, Dr. Lucatori, you mentioned uh, the idiopathic eosinophilia pneumonia. There's an acute version and a chronic version. 
Do you see that often? Because just, I'm asking because from my experience, I don't think I've actually ever heard of it. No, I, I have not seen it often. I feel like we sort of invoke it more than we actually see it, because it's definitely you know, sort of on the list. And um, it should be noted that even like hyper eosinophilic um, uh, you know, syndrome, um, is can, you can have infiltration of the lungs. It's not necessarily the pneumonia. But the acute um, eosinophilic pneumonia often is um, you know, women about her age, um, uh, but they, again, present much sicker and often, you know, without treatment will go into respiratory distress and failure. Um, but no, I've not seen it often. Seen I, it. I, I was just, I did just see a, a, a case of a man that presented with eosinophilia right after he had been shoveling pigeon droppings off of his roof and came in with respiratory failure. And he had some faint ground glass opacities on his CT and pulmonary was thinking that there may be an acute um, eosinophilic pneumonitis. Um, and he uh, dramatically improved on, on steroids. Um, which, as I'm sure we'll talk about, eosinophils just, just go... melt. They just, steroids. yeah, they go away very, very quickly yeah. uh, with steroids. Interesting. All right, so um, she also got some imaging done. Uh, and just for our listeners, uh, she got a CT of her lungs, which showed scattered subpleural consolidative opacities in both lungs. In your opinion, what is this consistent with? And is there any other additional tests you would like to order? So I think in terms of um, the CT findings, so when we're looking at the CT, a lot of these almost look subpleural. They're all kind of pleural-based, very... Um, uh, on the, very much on the periphery, um, which I do believe um, eosinophilic granulomas or EGPA tends to have peripheral pulmonary nodules. Um, other and, and you know infections that can do that. Cryptococcus likes to have very discrete peripheral nodules, but this is not consistent with Cryptococcus whatsoever. I'm just trying to think of other things that can cause these peripheral nodules. Um, Certain malignancies, we often talk about pleural-based malignancies, but again, we wouldn't expect to see this with eosinophils. Um, in terms of what else uh, would we like, to, would I like to order? So there's a whole slew kind of based on now with this um, eosinophilia. So I, I think um, definitely going kind of talking about the aspergillus route for a uh, route for aspergillus or AG, um, aspergillus pulmonary bronco or bronchopulmonary aspergillosis or allergic bronchopulmonary aspergillosis talking about aspergillus IgE IgE just in general um, checking both C anca and P anca although they're not always positive and sometimes are only around 50 to 75 percent being positive in eGPA they're not as great compared to GPA um, Again, still thinking, this doesn't necessarily look like strongylodiasis, but checking for um, stool studies for, strong, uh, for strongy. And again, being from the Dominican Republic, you know, TB doesn't necessarily cause eosinophilia, but COXI certainly does. COXI doesn't necessarily cause peripheral nodules, but it can cause bilateral pulmonary nodules. I think I would check serologies for that and um, potentially... I think the other thing is tissue being the issue and all things in medicine. I want to try and biopsy one of these. I agree. I think now, you know, we have the entity um, that we used to call PI syndrome. I don't know if they still do or not, but pulmonary infiltrates with eosinophilia. I think now they just call it uh, pulmonary eosinophilia. Um, but basically, um, uh, you know, there is sort of a, a differential for um, uh, for what we're seeing here. Um, we've mentioned, I think, a lot of... Um, of the the diagnoses already, um, simple pulmonary eosinophilia being the Loeffler syndrome, a um, a response to an allergen infection, some sort of inflammation, um, um, and I think uh, that includes you know the entities that we've talked about before that Derek just mentioned again. So I think it, I also probably would want to biopsy. The other option would be a bronch with BAL. I think that probably given the peripheral eosinophilia probably would, would see eosinophils, may or may not see, um, you know, a, a nematode uh, or, you know, sort of an infectious. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> so, um, but I think that uh, probably a biopsy would be the way I would, I would go, especially because they're so peripheral and probably uh, pretty easy to, to get. The only other thing um, would be, question about tryptase if this would be if this is an allergic response um, that could be elevated um, and, so, and sometimes even in chronic eosinophilic 
syndrome. Uh, tryptase can be elevated from what I understand. Although it's pretty nonspecific, we already have some nonspecific testing with the ESR and CRP that are elevated, so I don't know if there'd be any value there. All right, so we got some of these studies. Uh, the patient had an IgE level of 1600, and I think the reference range is between 0 to 100, so the IgE was elevated. Her aspergillus-specific IgE was normal. Her aspergillus skin test was negative. The stool was negative for ovoparasites, and they did a strongyloides antibody, antibody test, which was negative, and her TB test was also negative, and her ANA and ANCA were both negative. So I know you mentioned some of these tests. Would you have ordered all these tests? I mean... I mean, I personally practice um, high-cost care instead of high-value care, so I probably... I'm kidding. Um, <laughs> I, I do feel that these are all um, reasonable. You know, does it change the differential? Does it change my need for a biopsy? I suppose if the aspergillus... Um, again, I... Would, it's a slightly different presentation with more sort of constitutional symptoms, hemoptysis. Um, I, you know, the, the stool test for Strongy is not sensitive at all, so you maybe could have skipped that and just gotten the antibody. The ANA of the ANCA, as Derek mentioned, is, um, uh, you know, sort of, I think about 60% of patients with, um, with EGPA are positive, so it doesn't sort of rule it out, the fact that it's negative. I will say we've, I think we've ruled out Strongy with the, the antibody test. Um, I think in case you want to bronch, you probably want to rule out TB. Um, and I do think it was reasonably at Aspergillus. I don't know. Yeah, I, I don't, I, if I remember correctly, I think the IgE specific for Aspergillus is much more sensitive and specific than the skin test. I don't know if the skin test is all that helpful if you're doing the antibody, but I'd have to, to look that up to be completely honest. And the stool being negative for OMP, like Dr. Lucatorto said, stool OMP are really not great tests. They don't even let us order it here at UC Davis anymore because the pathologists are tired of doing tests that aren't sensitive and specific. Mm -hmm. If she had recently traveled um, and we had a really high suspicion for you know, whether it's ascariasis or something else that can cause Loeffler syndrome, maybe, but you really need to have three negatives before you really know if it's helpful or not. Yeah. And I think the elevated IgE is, again, it's not surprising. And a lot of even these infectious etiologies that we're, we've been talking about, it's a hypersensitivity or an allergic response to the infection and not necessarily the infection itself causing the um, the eosinophilia and the, and the symptoms. And so, again, even in those cases, I think the IgE would be elevated. And I think I actually read that if you were ever concerned for strongyloides, which I think we are in this patient, um, being from the Dominican Republic, that you wouldn't always test for it just because if you decide to give steroids. Yeah. Yeah. That's yeah. true. It would, yes, you do want to know about it before you, you give someone steroids because for almost every other cause of hyperosinophilia, you're just going to... Because it can just release and cause yeah. a big inflammatory yes. yeah. kind of response. Okay. Uh, we also got a lung biopsy as requested. And so for our listeners, we did a wedge biopsy from the right lung, which shows mucous cell hyperplasia, smooth muscle hypertrophy, and eosinophil-rich inflammatory infiltrate. Were you surprised by this, or was it kind of expected? I I, I was expecting kind of an eosinophil, like Dr. Lucatora mentions, the eosinophil, peripheral eosinophil doesn't necessarily um, predict what we're going to see in the tissues, but if the eosinophil count, the eosinophil count is so high, um, I would expect it to be the tissues just be packed with it. Um, and I actually, when I was looking, when I'm looking at this, I wonder in, I know for our listeners, um, it's hard, it's harder to say, but you know, it almost does look like there's a granuloma that's forming here that's got components of eosinophils. Um, so I, we've been talking about it often, but I think EGPA was um, certainly high on our differential, and I think this biopsy is showing many features consistent with it. Yeah, I think you know eosinophils um, love tissue, as we mentioned, um, and I guess it, it did also show this sort of eosinophilic vasculitis, which um, again we had sort of suspected. Yeah, so I think you just kind of talked about what you thought was the most likely diagnosis. 
So this patient, you're correct, you're both correct. The patient was diagnosed with eosinophilic granulomatosis polyangitis. So we which do is, the, the high five yeah. so can be heard. Okay. <laughs> Great job. Um, also called EGPA and previously called Church-Strauss Church syndrome, which is a vasculitis of small and medium arteries and often involves multiple organs. Can you talk quickly about maybe what organs are most commonly involved? So, so the, the, the lungs are the most common involved, but then we tend to see um, in terms, depending on where you're at in the, the stage, as I alluded to earlier, that there are different stages for EGPA. It can certainly affect the kidneys, although I don't believe it's as common as with GPA. Um, and we do tend to see a lot more neuropathy or nervous system involvement uh, compared to GPA. Yeah. And then sinus involvement, as we mentioned before. Yeah. Yeah, and I think when I was reading, um, by the time if it were to involve the cardiovascular system, that usually that's, I think half the patients can um, die from it. Right. If it's spread to that, to the organ. I don't think I've ever seen anyone with um, cardiac involvement for EGPA, but I can count on one hand the number of times I've seen EGPA, so probably not <laughs> the best way of uh, thinking about it. Yeah, so um, in terms of treatment, usually with EGPA, patients are often initiated on a prednisone treatment, and if acute multi-organ disease is involved, then they will be given intravenous uh, glucocorticoid. And then for patients with more advanced refractory diseases, an immunosuppressive agent is typically added on, including azathioprine or methotrexate. Although I did read that with methotrexate, you'd kind of hold off hold off on that a little bit just because of the lung involvement or possible lung involvement as a side effect. Um, and then for some patients, cyclophosphamide is typically used in combinations with glucocorticoid for patients with very severe multi-organ disease. And usually the patients are often treated from 12 to 8 months and uh, slowly tapered if tolerable. So for our patients, uh, the diagnosis is EGPA, and she was started on prednisone with resolution of dyspnea and wheezing in only after three days of treatment. Her absolute peripheral eosinophilic count transiently decreased to a level with the normal two weeks later. However, after a few weeks, her eosinophilic count became elevated again, so she was started in azathioprine with significant improvement. And 18 months after receiving her diagnosis, the patient continued to do well on azathioprine uh, treatment daily. All right, so great job with this case. Uh, any final thoughts before we wrap up? The only thing I was going to say is I, I do think we, you know, asthma, again, the PFTs all pointed towards asthma. The, the history all the history and exam all sounded like asthma. As Dr. Lucatorto mentioned at the very beginning of this, it's odd that she's presenting with this as a first symptom. Um, so I do think when you have an adult onset asthma without any childhood involvement, yes, it can happen, but we should be thinking about asthma mimickers. Yeah, and I think you know, this was a great case for sort of starting broadly, you know, sort of thinking young, a young woman, um, young otherwise healthy woman um, with a chronic cough, adding the shortness of breath and wheezing, getting to sort of adult onset um, asthma, adding maybe a few diagnoses based on her, you know, birthplace and profession, uh, and then, um, uh, you know, sort of um, getting the eosinophilia and then thinking about, and the, and the imaging that basically then sort of said, okay, this is, um, a young woman with uh, pulmonary eosinophilia um, and without a lot of other constitutional signs and symptoms and with an infectious, um, you know, workup that was negative um, really sort of led us to, to the EGPA. Yeah, that, I think those are great points. Well, thank you again both for sharing your wisdom and clinical reasoning with us. It was such a pleasure chatting with you both. And to our listeners, thank you for tuning into our mini-series, Clinical Problem Solving. If you like this episode, please be sure to subscribe to Mountain Lion.